of our worship. I pray now as we come to your word that your spirit would give us insight. I pray we would experience a change within our heart and our life. I thank you for your word and that it's authoritative and sufficient. And I pray that, Father, you would work through me in my weakness. And I pray, God, that all of us collectively, everyone here today, we would all be changed from being in your word. We pray this to the glory of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6. Today, I've entitled the sermon, Learning from Solomon's Temple. Learning from Solomon's Temple. We're going to be looking at, again, um, a few chapters this morning. And it's pivotal as we jump in that we get a sense of what's happening when we look at 1 Kings 6, 7, and 8 and into chapter 9. And one of the difficult parts is just getting handles that we can hold. If we don't have handles, it's really hard. It's easy to get lost in all of it. I um, had the opportunity um, several weeks ago, me and my older three kids had a great trip, and we went up to see my sister in New Jersey. And uh, on the way, we went through uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, my good friend, Tom Parker, he lined it up through his sweet daughters for us to get tours of the Capitol and the Supreme Court. And I had never in my life been in the Capitol building, and I'd never been in the Supreme Court, but I had the opportunity to get inside and look around. And none of us today, as we think about 1 Kings and we think about the Old Testament, have ever had the opportunity to go inside the temple or even to look at the temple. But when we come to 1 Kings and we start to look at Solomon and the building of the temple and all that's involved, it's as if we get an opportunity to take a tour of the temple. And one thing that I think we often forget, and, and I had to be reminded of, is that there's so much description of what was inside the temple because we have to remember the few that had access inside the temple, the few that could see some of the things described. And so for all the people of Israel, they had this unique chance to see from the Word of God the details and all of the adornments of the temple. This morning, let's look at 1 Kings 6 through 8. And what I want to do starting out is I want to try to get handles. We're going to look at an outline. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you four parts to this outline that we're going to try to look at. Because if we can understand this, I think then we can take the next step in the process of trying to unpack how we can look and apply this this morning. The first thing that we need to be aware of is that from 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 51, we see a description of Solomon building the temple and his palace. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 51. And when we get into this section, what we see is we see things like this. In that first point, we see the building of the temple. We see the chambers, the building of the chambers. The chambers in chapter 6, verse 5 through 10. It's really fascinating. And, and one of the things that we're not going to do this morning is go through the details 
of this section, but just to give you an, a, a sense of the majesty of what's taking place, look at verse 7 of chapter 6. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. These stones were prepared and were fitted. And one of the most amazing visits you could ever make is to go up underneath the, 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 the streets of modern Jerusalem to go down below there by the temple, near the temple mount, and to look at the majesty of the way in which they fit stones. And they have no idea how they put them there. They have no idea how they accomplish this engineering feat. We're talking stones that are massive, that literally were fitted perfectly. And that's exactly what took place in the building of the temple. And so when we look at this, we see the majesty and the reverence and the holiness that went into this building. We see not only the building of the chambers. We see in chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, God's charge to Solomon. We see God's charge to Solomon. We see the cherubims. We see the doors in 631 through 35. We see the court. We see an explanation of the time it took to build. We get into chapter 7. Before we keep going here, I think there's a slide of, of just a, one of the pictures of the temple. And when we think of Solomon's temple and we think of all the grandeur and all of the details, it's interesting because we take all of the measurements I was looking at one source. It says the inside ceiling was 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, 50 feet high. The highest point on the temple that Solomon built was 120 cubits tall. You take a cubit from your, is a, from your elbow to the end of your middle finger, which typically is about 18 inches. So when you're looking at these measurements, you see a lot of cubits. Um, you see 20 stories, 207 feet high, and we see this over and over. But when we move into chapter 7, we see his palace. Solomon's palace was large. It was bigger than the temple. When we look at his palace, as we look at that slide about Solomon's palace, what you find is, is that you've got several different buildings that are all around each other. And while you can't see the details unless you've got amazing vision, you can't see that maybe if you're younger than 10, you can see it. And, and what you find is, is you've got the, uh, the house of Lebanon, all of that, the cedar. You've got the hall of pillars, the hall of judgment. You've got a house for Pharaoh's daughter. And you have all of that in that area of Solomon's house. When you continue to move through chapter 7, you learn of a man named Hiram, different than the gentleman we learned about earlier. And we learn there that he did great work on the temple. He built two pillars. He crafted this area of, that depicted the molten sea. It was 10 bases, 10 lavers, all the vessels of 
the temple. So chapter 6 and chapter 7, you're looking at the details of so many intricacies of what went in, not only to the building of the temple, but then the building of Solomon's palace. And then we see more information about all of the furnishings of the temple at the end of chapter 7. But then we see something that really is going to hit us because it's going to remind us this is not just any ordinary structure. The temple was unique. The temple was God's sovereign way of manifesting his presence the way he chose to do so amongst his people. It was that which he had done earlier as they wandered in the wilderness through what we call the tabernacle that we learn about in the book of Exodus. But now we see that God's ordained means by which he continued that very process through the tabernacle was going to be through Solomon and the building of the temple. Go to chapter 8 with me. Let's read verses 1 through 11. Because the first section of this outline in chapter 6 and chapter 7 is the building of the temple and the building of the palace. We get into chapter 8, though. It's another key point. It's the ark brought into the temple. We read in chapter 8, verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Athenium, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting. And all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Notice that phrase there. You know, one, if we know anything about the ark of the covenant, we know the holiness of God. We know how you were not to play around flippantly with the ark or you could lose your life. And we immediately see that word holy when it speaks of the vessels that had previously been in the tent. And then it says the priest and the Levites brought them up and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel. When they came out of the land of Egypt, and when the priests came out of the holy place, notice what happens. A cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Unbelievable. We see there at the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 8, how the ark is brought into the temple and the glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. 
And what happens next is we see Solomon blesses the Lord before the people. In chapter 8, look at verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. What a dramatic scene. A dramatic scene now in which you think back and you go, okay, what's going on and, and, and how do we understand this? And we'll look at this in a moment, but you have to remember you have the, the exodus that took place out of Egypt. And, and think about it. Before that, you know, you had the promise of, of, of a land, a nation, and a blessing from the Abrahamic covenant that God had given Abram. And now it looks like all hope is lost because the people at the end of the book of Genesis are getting ready to go into Egypt into slavery as you move into Exodus. And all of the promises and all of the hope that many had in the promise of God would have been, they'd have been tempted to doubt and tempted to wonder. You go from the book of Exodus and you see God's miraculous redemption at the hands of the Egyptians, and you see the people being freed, and you see all the plagues and the glory of God and how it came against all of the gods of Egypt. And you move from there, and then you move into all the wilderness wanderings. Again, it seems like no hope. They'll never get where they're supposed to go. And then you move into the book of Joshua, and you see this glorious picture of conquering in seven years. You move into the book of Judges, a period of 350 years, where it seems like, again, all is lost because they go from victory to bondage, victory to bondage, over and over and over. And yet what's happening all throughout, God is faithful and now God has not only brought them through the period of the judges, he's brought them out of Joshua. He's brought them to a united kingdom in which they had three kings, Saul, David, and now Solomon, and now the house of the Lord has been built. Unbelievable. And not only that, but to see that God had chosen, as he said, to fill the temple of the Lord with his presence. So we see that he goes before the people, a dramatic moment, a moment 
where you, you, you can read this and almost envision Solomon just praying before God. But Solomon is speaking in front of the people, and they are literally reminded of the history that they have walked through as a people and the faithfulness of God in the midst of their sin. The fourth part of this, you not only see in chapter 8, verse 12 to 21, Solomon blesses the Lord before the people, but then he, he offers this prayer of dedication. A prayer of dedication, it's about 30 verses. We're not going to read it all. We're not going to read any of this part. But what I want to give you is an overview. He prays things like this. He, he comes before the Lord. He prays for God's presence and protection. He prays for forgiveness of trespasses. He prays for forgiveness of sins that had caused defeats in battle. He prays for forgiveness of sins that had brought on the consequence of drought. He, he's praying in the context that God would use his holy temple as a place where his presence would be seen and his forgiveness would be experienced. He prays for sins that had resulted in other calamities. Going through this outline, I, I came across it was super helpful. Mercy for God, fearing foreigners, victory in battle, restoration after captivity, attention to every prayer. But then we move into chapter 9, and in those first nine verses, we end what many call the temple narrative. It goes from chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 9. And there at the beginning of chapter 9, we see sombering words. Notice, and we'll read all nine verses, verse 1 of chapter 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. In chapter 9, verse 2, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. But notice what the Lord says to him. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Sombering words, words of warning to Solomon. This morning, I pray that this section of the book of Kings will help us in multiple ways that the Spirit leads us in, but four areas I want us to focus on. I'm going to give them to you right now, and then that way you'll know where we're going. But the first area is that this temple 
points us to the uniqueness and the holiness of God. The second area it points us to, the heart of true worship. Another area it points us through, and actually it's the second area, the grace and the faithfulness of God. So the uniqueness and the holiness of God. The grace and the faithfulness of God. The heart of true worship, number three. The fourth area that I believe it points us to is the frailty of the king, but the new covenant blessings that come in Jesus. The frailty of the king but the new covenant blessings that come in Jesus. Number one, the uniqueness and the holiness of God. The uniqueness and the holiness of God. I think we all can relate to this idea that at times we lose sight of the uniqueness and the holiness of God. And we treat what is holy and what is reverent is very commonplace. In many ways, people demonstrate by their actions that they could take it or leave it when it comes to the worship of God. But when we come to 1 Kings and we come to Old Testament scriptures that point us to the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the reality of the tabernacle in the most holy place, the reality of the most holy place in the temple, the intricacies and the adornment and the furnaces and all the interiors and the exteriors of the temple. It's pointing us to the reality that God is not like us. We see in the cross of Jesus that God identifies with us, but we see through not only his humanity, that way in which he identifies with us, we see his uniqueness and that he is not like us and that he is God, fully God, fully man. So while he's completely unique from us, we see through the cross of Christ this amazing picture of grace that the God-man chooses to identify with us. We come to the temple, though, and when we see this part of the uniqueness and the holiness of God, it's to point us to the reality of who he is. And one passage that really helped me in walking through the study of this passage was 1 Chronicles chapter 28. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, we see David speak to Solomon. And it's interesting because in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 11, it says, Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat. And look at verse 12. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts. But one passage in this section that I want to read to you that is absolutely pivotal is in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 19. David says, All this he made clear to me in writing, Solomon speaking, all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. And the question becomes this, 
Whose plan? Man's or God's? God's plan. When we think of the temple, one of the areas that we have to remember is in order to understand the uniqueness and the holiness of God, we have to see that that God is manifesting who he is in the way that he has decided to his people. It's not something that mankind could come up with on their own. And so David, even as he explains to Solomon all that has gone into this and all that God has promised and all that God has laid on his heart, it's clear in 1 Chronicles 28 that this comes from the hand of the Lord. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 5, we were talking about the wisdom of Solomon and how the wisdom of Solomon not only showed up in his his judicial wisdom and how he could handle situations, it came up not only in his judicial wisdom, but as an administrative wisdom and how he governed the land. But then we saw the wisdom that God gave him was demonstrated also where? It was demonstrated in the planning of the temple. And when we come into chapter five, notice the first five verses. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants for Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God. Why? Because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. It was unique. It was holy. It was given by God as his plan It was designed for Solomon to build, not David. But what do we learn about some of the things here? I find it uh, 2 Chronicles 2, verse 5. And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. It would show the greatness of God If you go to the Mideast and you do any kind of traveling at all, you're going to get an opportunity to go to many places where there was foreign gods and foreign temples of all the different people that lived around Israel. And yet God was unique. He was the only living God. God was holy, and his temple was to reflect who he was. 2 Chronicles 2, verse 9, it says, "...to prepare timber for me in abundance." For the temple which I am about to build shall be great and wonderful. And so when we look at the New Testament, and we're thinking now, you know, we're looking back at the cross, and we're looking back, way back to the temple. We're looking back 3,000 years to the building of the temple. And when we go all the way back there, what are we looking at? We're looking at the reality that 1 Peter 1.16 says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the holiness of God was revealed in the way in which his temple was built and constructed and his presence was manifested. In Psalm 22, verse 3, it says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. 
You remember when Isaiah went into the throne room that God allowed him to go into in Isaiah 6, and there he's witnessing the throne room in Isaiah 6, 3, and it says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, it says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. We get into chapter 7 of 1 Kings, and we learn about Hiram. Again, a man different from the Hiram we read about earlier, but we read about Hiram in chapter 7, verse 13, and all of the work that he did on the temple from verse 13 through verse 51. It really seems to picture a man that was a vessel in his workmanship to the glory of God. I was reading about one commentary, and and the gentleman said, you know, this is a picture of, of all of our work to be done to the glory of God. Whatever you do, whatever trade you do, whatever task you do, that you can do it to his glory. Well, we don't know if that was on Hiram's mind, but it sure seems like it. And his workmanship and his craftsmanship, it's the word skill is used there and it points to the wisdom of this man. And, and that's where we get the idea that wisdom is like skillful living not just skillful craftsmanship, and it's a fun connection there. But I want you to see this because what is it about Hiram's work and what is it about the details of chapter 7, verse 13 through the end of the chapter that gives a picture of the holiness of God and what's being constructed in this temple? I was looking at Dr. Marita again, and this was so helpful to me four basic items that, that Hiram constructed. This is amazing. First, he makes a pair of massive pillars. Massive pillars, it says in verse 15 of chapter 7. But notice something here. In chapter 7, look at verse 21. In chapter 7, verse 21, notice there was names of these pillars. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And you may be thinking, well, why? Well, there is significance in these names. And when we look at this, we, we see that our reading here, it says these pillars... It, um, one pillar was called Jacob. He will establish is what that means. He will establish. The other pillar was called Boaz. You know what that means? In him is strength. He will establish. In him is strength. These pillars conveyed a message of the strength and the promise and the power of God but within all of that and what they portrayed, it was that which goes back to the uniqueness of this temple and the uniqueness of God. I love that. It's unique and it's different from anything. But what else did Hiram do? The second basic item that he built and that he constructed was, second, Hiram made a large holding tank called a molten sea. 
verses 23 to 26 of chapter 7. What in the world is this? If you read this the first time, you're thinking, man, I don't know what I'm reading here. A molten sea. Well, the, the commentary here was helpful to me. It was designed to hold lots of water, about 11,000 gallons. He decorated it with gourds and made it slip in the shape of a lily. The stand consisted of 12 bronze oxen. It was for washing and maybe even conveys the idea of God ruling over the chaotic waters and all creations. There was another item that Hiram was involved in in chapter 7. Not just the pillars, not just the molten sea, but there were 10 water carts. And what was this all about? The 10 water carts, it says here, to hold smaller basins for other temple rituals. Each basin contained about 200 gallons of water. The stands had four wheels and were decorated with cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Why do we need all of these basins? It demonstrates God's concern for cleansing. You can't approach God without the understanding of who God is. You can't approach God without an understanding of his power, an understanding of his creative ability, and an understanding that he is unique and he is holy. And in order to even attempt to worship in his presence, there's a need for cleansing. Cleansing. Why cleansing? Because he's holy. He's separate. He's different from us. The fourth area that you see here, you see these smaller basins, the shovels, the sprinkling basins, verses 40 through 47, all of it from the gold altar, from the 10 lampstands, from the bowls, the trimmers, the sprinkling basins, the ladles, the fire pans, all of it covered in pure gold. What does it demonstrate? It demonstrates the uniqueness of our God the holiness of our God. We see all of these aspects of who God is. But the second thing I want us to see this morning is not only reminded that the temple points us to the uniqueness and the holiness of God, another way that it points us, it points us to God's grace and his faithfulness. God's grace and his faithfulness. I found it fascinating. I don't know about you, but I'm not really good at, there's some dates I remember from school or things that I've studied and more than others, but I had to go back and look at when Abram was born. Abram was born, according to most conservative scholars, around 2000 BC. And, and many scholars believe it was around 1925 BC that he left Herod. What's fascinating is, is that in chapter 6, verse 1, there's a date given when the temple was built, and that date allows us the opportunity to figure out the date of the exodus, or it gives us a lot of help to try to figure it out. And a lot of scholars believe it was around 1490. Some go a little bit 1426, different dates, but here's the idea. I want you to see something here. It had been in 1925, 1926 B.C., somewhere in that range, that God had promised Abram that through his seed, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And it was about little less than 500 years later that the people would, 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 would come out in, in the exodus. And you think about all that had happened. And then you come all the way down here. And, and one of the things that I don't know if you remember when I read in chapter 8 is Solomon is blessing the Lord in front of the people. You know what he kept mentioning? The promise of God. He was faithful to keep his promise. He was faithful. God is keeping his promise. So when we are looking at this in 2022, and we're thinking, what in the world can we learn from the temple? One thing we can learn from the temple is not only the uniqueness and the holiness of God, but one thing we have to remember from the temple is that these are people that were living in real time, and these people's history went back, and all the way back, they had gone through this period of a thousand years since the promise that God had given their forefather, Abram. And God was keeping his promise. It's easy to go through periods of our life to think and be tempted that God's forgotten us. It's easy to go through periods of time where we wonder if God will keep his promises that he's given us in his word. But one of the areas, as the scripture says in Romans chapter 15, in verse 3, verse 4, it speaks about the Old Testament scriptures are written that we might be encouraged, that we might have hope. We come back to the Old Testament scripture and we're reminded that when God promises, it's always a yes, yes to the promise. God's promises, as we learn later on in the New Testament, are yes in Jesus Christ. Remember the book of Hebrews? In the book of Hebrews, we learn that God always keeps his word. He's a God that can never lie. So even as we go back and think, well, this is way back, don't forget that the people living then would have been amazed at the faithfulness of God, that even through all the exodus, even through all the wilderness wanderings, they had seen the hand of God. God was faithful to keep his word. I love this. Uh, God had promised the temple. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, it says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. What mountain is that? Mount Moriah. Moriah in Jerusalem. And where was Mount Moriah? Is it significant to the Jew? It's significant to the Jew because you go back into the time of Genesis and what do you see happens on Mount Moriah? Abraham walked up that mountain with whom? His beloved son, Isaac. And it was on Mount Moriah that Abraham was being faithful to obey God and was ready to sacrifice his son. And God provided a ram who was caught in the thicket. And what takes place there? A mark of God's faithfulness. Well, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, there's a promise there's a promise that later on you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You realize in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, it says, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Do you realize that Deuteronomy 
12, verse 10 and 11, Exodus 15, verse 17, Deuteronomy 16, verse 2, same promise. 2 Samuel is significant because that's the Davidic covenant where God makes a promise to David that there will be one who sits on his throne forever. This morning, we celebrate knowing the whole story. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Here he's speaking of Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. On and on and on, when you look at this passage, you're reminded of the faithfulness of God. But remember, where you see the faithfulness of God, the grace of God is close by. The grace of God. God pursuing his people. God working in spite of our sin. God seeking to dwell among his people. You hear all the time people say things like, well, God's mean in the Old Testament. Aren't you thankful he's nice in the New Testament? Please don't say that. Yes, is there a fuller expression of the realization of God's timetable of redemption in the New Testament? Absolutely. But the grace of God is evident throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And one of the ways it's evident is that God is meeting with his people and he is coming to them. In his grace. Number three this morning points us to a lot of realities. The third area I think it points us to is the heart of true worship. Because God is holy, and because God has laid out who he is, and God has revealed who he is and laid out how he is to be approached, we have to remember something. Tonight at our first Riverside U of this fall, we're going to be talking about worship, so it's a great tie in. But we don't come to God on our terms, but his. I want you to think about that this morning. Do you think that the people of Israel just thought, you know what, we need to figure out how we want to approach God. What can give us comfort? What can really give us good experiences? What can make us feel better about ourselves? What can give us enjoyment? What can be a lot of fun? Not on your life. Yet if we're not careful in modern context of how we view worship, we could be tempted to adopt such a heretical view. That worship's not about God, it's about us. I'll tell you, you know, being a, a son of a pastor and being around the church a lot, I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the years, even since I was a kid, you know, people leaving a church service. I really enjoyed that service. I'm glad you did, but it wasn't for you. Do you hear my point? Some of the ways we talk, and some of those people can say that out of reverence for God. They just are saying it in the wrong vernacular. They could be saying that was a worshipful experience, that God was glorified and honored, but we're so conditioned at times that even I've fallen into that trap. We look at things more like a consumeristic society. We look at things like, what is good for me? What would I like? How would I like to select this? But when it comes to the temple, we're reminded who God is. He's unique. He's faithful. He's gracious. He's holy. And we worship him not according to our whims, 
not according to our preferences, not according to the way we like it. We worship him the way that he has revealed to be worshiped. In the temple, you don't play around and you don't come in bringing what you want to bring. You come in according to who God is and you offer up to him what he desires. It's humbling, isn't it? Because if you're like me, it's easy sometimes to forget who's superior. <laughs> Sounds really obvious. But there's a problem when we forget who's superior when we're thinking about worship and we're thinking about church. He's the one who's superior. He's laid this out. He designed to be worshiped. We see sacrifices in this section of Scripture. We see a call, though. You remember what, what Scott read earlier in the call to worship in chapter 6, verse 11 through verse 13. And then even in the warning passage of 1 Kings 9, verses 1 through 9, did you notice how... You can't separate worship from God's word. It's not simply, you would think that Solomon would be safe because he did all of these activities that were amazing. Solomon was the one who was behind the building of the temple. Yet what did God remind him of? What was way more important than that was his heart. It was his obedience to the word. It was his response to the word. Let us never fall into ritual where we lose sight that to obey is better than sacrifice. Let us never fall into the trap where we associate only the external and the ritual with the things of worship. 1 Kings 6 through 9 reminds us that God is interested in our hearts. You remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. You remember what Paul says in Romans 12, that presents your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. All of this points to a different dimension than what we typically think of when it comes to worship. But the Old Testament story of the temple reminds us that Worship's not about us, but it's about God. And we're called to worship him the way he desires, not the way we desire. It's connected to the word with a true heart. It's connected to following God. It's, it's so about the motive and the heart according to what God has revealed in his word. But finally this morning, this, this lengthy section reminds us of the frailty of the king, and it reminds us of new covenant blessings. I, I don't know about you, but is it hard for you to go back and watch a movie when you're watching uh, the first one in, of a trilogy? Is it hard to watch in isolation without thinking about what happens two movies later? It's hard, isn't it? I can't go back and watch uh, old sports. Uh, I remember... If I watch a Georgia game from 1993, I remember how bad they were, and I remember what bowl game they probably lost that year. Or I can't remember watching, I can't watch a Celtics game in 87 without thinking about the horrible ending of that season in the playoffs. I know it's coming. I can watch the game, and I can see the game, but I'm mindful because I've lived it of what's coming later. When we look at this, I pray that we wouldn't forget to put on our new covenant glasses to remember that we are looking at a story that we have to honor in its context, 
but never lose sight of where it's pointing to. What do we notice about Solomon in all of these warnings? Remember, God promised, look, if you obey my word, blessing will come. But what did he say would happen if there was disobedience through the line? What would he do? They would be a heap of ruins. Did that ultimately happen? Yes. The northern kingdom happened in 722. The southern kingdom here in Jerusalem that we're looking at, that temple was destroyed. 586 BC, and I'm reminded of Solomon, I'm reminded of the Egyptian wife that he married a woman who had allegiances to a foreign god, and we're going to see in the next couple of weeks that things go haywire with Solomon, and you're reminded that he's a man, and he's a man with weaknesses, and even here, we don't know for sure because it's not mentioned specifically, but it's potentially problematic that the larger palace was his. It's potentially problematic. We can't say for certain because it does not specify that. It could be just a sign of the blessing of God in his life. And it could have just been a sign that the Lord blessed him as he was faithful to him. God can choose to do that if he so pleases. But what we do know is regardless of what's going on when we look at the complex of Solomon's house and all of the compound that he lived at, we know that even if that's not problematic, there's a lot of other areas of his life that are. And what are we reminded of? I, I read these passages and I'm thinking, oh no, I know what's coming. I know what's coming next. It's not what we're hoping for. You know what we're reminded of? We're reminded that we need one to be faithful. We need one who's not going to fall into the same pitfalls. We need one who's not going to mess things up over and over and over. I love this because, you know, what's amazing. First Kings 8.27, Solomon understood that God couldn't even be contained in the temple. He said, but will God, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. He had a sense that while God was choosing to manifest his glory in that structure, it would be very naive and even sinful to think that that building contained all of the power and the glory and the promises of God. But you know what? I love this. Matthew chapter 12, we're almost done. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking in the same chapter where he said he was greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon like we looked at last week. And in verse 6, he says this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Remember John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that filled the temple when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in to the most holy place. That Shekinah glory of God was manifested in the glorious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came to this earth, because he was one in nature and one in substance with the Father. He 
revealed to us his deity. He revealed to us his glory. What do we see here? When we look at this passage this morning, we see the sinfulness of man, the frailty of man. We need a greater king. We think about the fact that in the Old, in the New, you know, the Old Testament, this temple we looked at this morning as we close, this temple in the intricacies of the most holy place, the intricacies of all the interior, that the common man, the common woman, the child, they could not see it with their own eyes because there was form and function for the high priest. There was form and function for the office of the priesthood that they would have different access that the common man would not have. But what have we learned in our study of Hebrews that in Jesus Christ, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Friend, today, as you look and think about the temple, I pray you would go, oh my goodness, look at the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the substance of all the shadow of the temple. He fulfills it perfectly, and he is our access to God. This morning, friend, we don't need a temple in order to come before our holy God. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to dwell among us. And it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In closing this morning, I I was reading, I mean, we've all been enthralled, I guess, by the news of this week with the queen and her 96 years coming to an end. And what a mysterious but loved figure by most, not all. But you know what? I read a story that really uh, touched me. Robert Cunningham said he heard the story from a security guard, and he tried to verify the validity of it and felt good enough to post it. The, uh, every le- he says every legislative session begins with a visit from the queen, and it's a very regal tradition. She wears a crown and robe, processes down a hallway, lined with the queen's guards and who literally strike the stone walls with their swords to make sparks. Um, the hallway ends at the house of the lords where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. Several years ago, they were forced to break tradition a bit to accommodate the queen in her older age. There's a grand staircase leading to the hallway. It became too difficult for her to climb, so they decided to start using the elevator. Well, the first year they did this, a mistake was made. The lift operator accidentally pushed the button for the wrong floor. Rather than the entrance to Parliament, he presses the button for the maintenance floor. The lift goes up, the doors open, and Alice from the cleaning crew, with her head down, pushes her cleaning cart into the elevator, as she's done countless times. Only this time, it's quite different. She's pinned the Queen of England against the wall of the small lift. The doors close behind her. Alice is stuck in the lift with the queen and her guard, and she lets out an expletive not fitting the presence of royalty. Then an awkward silence, knowing knowing what to do, the silence was broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter. 
And then the most remarkable invitation. Rather than opening the doors to let Alice off, the queen asked the lift operator to take them down to the proper floor. The doors open, and to everyone's shock, out walks Her Majesty the Queen and Alice, the maintenance worker. Then the queen and her regalia, along with Alice in her maintenance uniform, process side by side down the royal hallway. Once a year for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her newly found friend. Queen Elizabeth, the end. I love that because, you know, it's one thing. It would be quite a remarkable, exciting experience for that to happen if you happen to be Alice. But friend, when we look at the majesty and the narrative and the storyline and the history of the Old Testament, it's quite another to have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I'm going to read it one more time. We're going to pray and be done. But therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Confidence to enter through the greater King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you this morning. There's so many realities that your word reminds us of. I know there's so many more that we could have even explored and looked at, God. I thank you for the faithful people that poured into me even as I was studying into this text and how much I learned from faithful servants. Oh God, help us to help us to bring this home and we know we can't bring this home in our heart apart from the work of your gracious Holy Spirit. I pray Lord today that every person here would understand that you are unique and you are holy and if they stand on their own merit and on their own works, they will be judged eternally and they will face a life and a future of of judgment. But God, I pray we would see the fulfillment of the temple. I pray we would see that one greater than the temple has come. I pray that we would see one greater than Solomon has come, one that fulfills all the weaknesses, one that keeps the conditions perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray today, Lord, all of our hope would be in him. Pray there wouldn't be a person that leaves this room today that doesn't base their future hope completely on the work and the person of Jesus Christ, who is our greater king. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me in these last couple moments as Mike plays? Let's just go to the Lord and, and just have a prayerful attitude. If you're here today and you need to pray or you're thinking that, man, I, I need to know about the gospel, or today is a day that is a day of my salvation. You may be thinking, I've never desired to trust Christ and depend on him. But today I do. I pray today that you'd make that known. And this morning, I'm going to be up front here. If you want to come down, you can talk to me. You can pray with me afterwards. You can talk to me afterwards. But as Mike plays, let's just go before the Lord as we reflect on what we have looked at in his word.
Our hearts would be touched and moved by the reality of, of who you are. That you're a gracious God. You're holy. You're unique. You've commanded us to worship you. And apart from trusting in your son and the change that he brings by his grace, our worship will never be accepted. But I thank you, Lord, that uh, all the good that we see happen from people in the Old Testament as a result of your grace. I thank you, Lord, it's the same reality in our life as we look to the Lord Jesus. As they look towards the promise, God, as we rest in the promise and its fulfillment at the cross, I pray as we leave that we'd be encouraged, we'd be changed. Help us, Lord, to think and consider our worship I pray, Lord, that we would see the joy that comes out of following you. Lord, I pray we would see the, the liberty and the, the inward blessings that are real in our life as we look to you and walk submitted to your word. And, and Lord, even these, 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 these calls and charges to Solomon, Lord, are so real to us. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.